Welcome to episode two of the podcast. My name is Lel Pavey and I am joined here by Mr. Christopher Northover. Chris Northover Hola. is a motorcycle journalist slash TV presenter slash really good friend of mine. But more importantly, Chris knows things about motorbikes that normal people don't know or didn't know they wanted to know. Can I, can I be an inventor? I always want to be like Chris Northover, motorcyclist slash inventor. What have you invented? Yeah, there's the rub. <laughs> so Chris used to, to preface this podcast a little bit, Chris, you used to work in Triumph as a design engineer. Correct. I was a chassis design engineer at Triumph. And then I got kicked out of engineering for talking too much. <laughs> it's true. For being too So happy. Chris is a conundrum of being an enormous nerd, but also quite cool which doesn't happen very often. Um, most of the time you end up like me where you're an enormous nerd that doesn't actually know anything. So <laughs> we basically, this podcast has come about because we had a conversation about two months ago where I asked you, and I think this is a great question to start with, the Yamaha Tenere has been widely reported, including by myself, the new Tenere 700, as being very abrupt when you first open the throttle. And... This is something that I have noticed across Yamaha's bikes when I've ridden them, especially their dirt bikes, have wonderful fueling, apart from the fact that when you open the throttle, it's like being hit in the face with a cricket bat. And I don't know why. <laughs> and whenever you ask anyone that races a Yamaha dirt bike, they're always like, yeah, you can do amazing things with their power tuner. It's really clever, but you cannot get rid of that abruptness when you first open the throttle. And I asked you why that was, and your answer was... You discovered my love of things in engineering that have childish names. Yes. So I said cylinder wetting. And my mind exploded. <laughs> <laughs> and when we'd finished being teenage boys. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there's a lot of reasons why manufacturers do things with bikes. And this is something that I'm quite fortunate to have sort of sinned from the inside, having worked inside a motorcycle manufacturer and alongside others in the engineering departments you get a different appreciation for the finished product. So as a consumer and like now in my role as a journalist and someone who buys motorcycles occasionally, they, you get things that you take as a consumer and you think, why the hell is it like that? What that makes no sense at all. But often it's because you've not seen actually the whole picture. We, we look at them as the end user, but there's a lot of manufacturing constraints, production constraints, shipping constraints. Sometimes the size of a bike can be governed by the size of the crate that that manufacturer has to deliver it in. And if it's too big, they have to take things off to fit it in the crate, which has got then a cost and a time implication. So there's a billion things, a billion pressures on a, on a motorcycle manufacturer to, to meet, to make a motorcycle saleable and successful in the market. Now, with the Yamahas, that initial fueling thing, again, I wouldn't want to sign my name on the wall and say it's definitely this, but with, with motorcycles... There's a thing called cylinder port wetting. So if you are opening the gas, you're letting fuel and air into the engine through the ports, which then go into the cylinder, piston, spark plug, burn, out the exhaust. Basic. Suck, squeeze, bang, blur. Back to my first point about engineering <laughs> things that have childish names. Made by people who don't get out much. It's honestly <laughs> true. So those ports between your injector or your carburetor on an older bike and the cylinder itself, you've got a, a port, a pipe mm -hmm. in, the, in the cylinder head. Now, those ports 
need wetting. So if you pour water, if you take a, a tube and you pour 100 milliliters of water in the top of the tube, how much water will you get out the bottom? It won't be 100 milliliters. Yeah. Because I'm, some will be left. I'm sure there's a mathematic calculation to determine the amount of water left on different surfaces. There is, but, but then I'd have even less friends if it went in. <laughs> but you say like, oh yeah, some yeah. So some, some, amount some gets left in the initial container, yes. but some gets left in the, in the port itself. Mm-hmm. But if you're just doing the same thing all the time, it's fine. There's no, no confusion there because you know how much is going to come out for how much you put in. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're fueling in a motorcycle, you calculate how much fuel that injector is going to put into the, into the inlet port. It sprays into the inlet port. The air mi- fuel mixture goes through into the cylinder. Bang. Now, if you've been off the throttle for a long time, that cylinder port wall actually dries out. What are we talking for a long time here? Five seconds? Less than that. You think how many times your piston's going up and down. Okay, yeah. Drawing air so through that port. a long time. A long time. Going in. to a closed throttle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As soon as you go to a closed throttle, there's no fuel being put down that port or very little fuel being put down. That means then the next opening of the throttle, you've got to not only get the right amount of fuel for the for the burn in the cylinder, but you've got to re-wet that port wall. And that is very difficult to calculate. And he's getting squeezed more and more now because we've got Euro 4, Euro 3, Euro 5, all these emissions reg- restrictions that are saying we need to put less less waste out of the exhaust. Yeah. So to err on the side of caution and put less fuel in, maybe get a slightly more abrupt throttle response, that can be one of the reasons why that happens is you're trying to be economical and yeah. low on the emissions. So you put less in. So that initial throttle opening when you're trying to get the port wet Stop sniggering. <laughs> get fuel into the cylinder. It, it's, it's one of a million complications and, and factors you have to deal with, but that definitely is an area where adding fuel in smooths everything out, but at the expense of emissions and economy, which currently in motorcycles is massively under the microscope. Mm. And only are going to get worse. Better. More worse, better. challenging. More challenging, yeah. yeah. But it's exactly that technology. So things like ride-by-wire... Things like um, electronic ignition, even back as far as that, digital fuel injection, multi-stage fuel injection, all those technologies that have come into motorcycles and keep developing, well, that happens not just because they want to make more performance, but quite often the emissions regulations force their hand with that technology step. Yeah. LED indicators. Yeah. You know, all that stuff. Yeah, sure, it's, it's going to come in at some point anyway, but by, by putting an emissions regulation down... The manufacturers looking at the cost and looking, going, hmm, well, we can't really afford to do secondary injectors on this ECU this year. But next year, suddenly we've got to meet this Euro 5. We need secondary injectors because we need that, mm-hmm. that technology just to meet the emissions. Mm-hmm. And the benefit of it is we can make more power at top end. Yeah. Okay. So along that same lines of why do manufacturers do certain things? And this is probably maybe a little bit obscure. But last year, Honda, or kind of, it was more 18 months ago now, Honda bought out a new CRF 450 motocross bike. It's not something we cover much here. And then they did the same thing on their Fireblade, which is also not something we cover much here at all. But it's very interesting. They produced the world's first pressed titanium fuel tank. And I found this article buried in the depths of Honda's own website, while looking for a different press release. And I read the article and it blew my mind because Honda had to invent a new technology 
because nobody had ever pressed titanium before. People do lots of things with titanium, but nobody had ever been along the lines of, we're going to make something that's pieces of pressed titanium the way you would press a fuel tank normally and weld it together. Nobody's ever done that before for a fuel tank. And they had to invent an entire new way of doing it. Now, this is kind of a similar question. Why? 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 There, there, there's two answers to this. There's the one that everyone's going to fall asleep in in a minute. Um, because Honda. Now, okay, it's, <laughs> it's a cheap shot answer. But honestly, in the global motorcycle market, Honda has and always will be an engineering superpower. Mm -hmm. it, they they really are. And, and that's not a Honda fanboy saying that. I've personally been quite critical of Hondas over the years, often because I know the level of technology and uh, that they're capable of. And the bikes we receive sometimes aren't. Yeah. aren't you feel like, oh, come on, guys. You, I feel like all my teachers at school going, if you tried... You, yeah. could, you could do something amazing, but because you don't, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. felt like they're, they're currently like on tick over, knocking out B-grade bikes every 10 seconds while <laughs> playing games and partying every weekend. Yeah, I hope yeah. that's what's going on there. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. So Honda have that ability to manufacture whatever they like, to buy the manufacturing plants, to build their own manufacturing plants, to embrace new technologies and to drive things in the market forward. Yeah, and 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 you know, they might not absolutely push the the envelope anymore in terms of technology and performance on their motorcycles, but on a manufacturing side, they they kind of do. Yeah, totally. So the the example about titanium pressing, so steel pressings in fuel tanks, difficult and restrictive. Okay, it wasn't when it first came out. It's a brilliant technique, and you can make great shapes. Yeah, but there's a limit on what you can get steel to do. Yeah. And so to get steel to go around some of those intricate shapes, you have to make it thicker and thicker and thicker because when you press something, you you thin it. When you yeah, if you it's bubblegum. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's, it's the yeah. bubblegum theory. If you have a big fat bit of bubblegum, you can blow a really big bubble. Yeah. So you can then use that material to make all sorts of intricate shapes and fill the mold essentially. Exactly that. Yeah. So if you go too thin, it obviously tears, and then you have weaker weaker areas on mm -hmm. on the tank. So there's always been this kind of fight to try and find better ways of pressing tanks. You'll see tanks that are made of two or three parts. Mm -hmm. For years, we've had tanks on sports bikes where part of the tank is made of plastic. Yeah. But you always think, oh, that's a neat touch. But sometimes it's actually because the shape they wanted they couldn't do wasn't achievable in in one hit in the in the pressing. Machine. So that before we go any further down the titanium yeah. route, I think this segues really nicely into into KTM. And so for me, coming from like a dirt bike background, I came into road bikes quite late. And then I stood there and went, there's some things I really don't understand why people do. Like, why are they doing this? And, and it, it kind of has really come to light in the new KTM 790 because KTM had a period between the 950 and the 790 where they did things like other road bike manufacturers in terms of they went from the 950 being real rally style to the fuel tank being on top of the engine and it being pressed out of steel. And then with the 790, they've gone, nope, that's no good. We're going to have plastic fuel tanks. And Road Bike World doesn't understand because they've never used plastic fuel tanks, but they've been using them in Dakar for, well, since 1997. And dirt bikes use them. And I've never seen anyone split one. And I've never had a problem with one. You need to come ride it with me more often now. <laughs> but you're much more likely to split a steel one than a plastic one. I would, or as, as likely, I think it's probably... But 
you can do whatever you want with a plastic mold. I, I know the mold is expensive, but you can do whatever you want with a plastic mold. So why do sports bikes not have plastic fuel tanks? Why do so many adventure, or like just bikes across the board, not use plastic fuel tanks? It's another, is another that a, excellent question. And, and that really, over the years, people have, uh, have bought out. There's been a few plastic fuel tank motorcycles, first mm -hmm. of all the Aprilia RS125, starting in the mid-90s. And I'm sure in the 90s that tech wasn't what it was tank. now because the, the plastics they're using, if you, the I polymers Things have moved on better. a lot in, in, that, in that world for sure. But plastic fuel tanks have been around a bit on road bikes. I think that's probably more of a manufacturing um, decision that that's made. If you can make it out of steel or you can make it out of plastic... For sure, you're just going to make a steel one, stamp them out, big pressing, seam world Because it's cheaper. Because cheap and easy. Ah, yeah. okay. And, and you see this technology move. So recently, there's been a big leap forward in high-pressure die castings. Yeah. Triumph built one in their own factory. Um, a couple of other Thai and Malaysian manufacturers. So, and KTM do it on and their so dirt bikes. All of a sudden, everyone's using high-pressure die casting. Yeah. And that technology's not suddenly appeared from nowhere. Yeah. It's been around. But a couple of big factories come in, it starts to become Cheaper. commercially viable. Yeah. Those big factories then go, bloody hell, we've got Triumph on the phone, KTM on the phone, BMW, build another one, build another one. And then, of course, their prices go down. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, high-pressure die-casting is, is everywhere. Yeah. And again, sometimes that comes from a push from technology as well. So trying so, to reduce manufacturing costs. Just explain what high-pressure die-casting is. So high-pressure die-casting is probably best thought of as like injection molding for plastic, yeah, but for aluminium. So compared to normal casting of aluminium cases, my understanding is the benefit is that you can make it as strong while making it lighter and thinner. In intricacy of the, of the part is the biggest gain okay. and, and accuracy rather than casting, which is make it hot and runny. Yeah, pour it into pour a sand Pour it in this mold, mold yeah. shut the lid on, mm -hmm. put in the fridge below the trifle, preferably until it seals. And then, yeah, machine what you want out out of it. Yeah. So those surfaces on a on a on a, on a conventional casting, for instance, a sand casting, a lot of wheels and engine cases were sand cast back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, Triple camps as well. Conventional casting is, yeah, a fair amount of movement on a surface. I wouldn't want to put a number to it because it varies depending on who's doing it, how mm -hmm. many you're doing, blah blah blah. But it, there's quite a lot of variance on those surfaces, which is why if you look at 20, 20 motorcycles with a cast swinging arm. Yeah, and look at a machining feature on them. Yeah, they'll be they'll be subtly different across those twenty motorcycles. Yeah, okay. because that cast surface moves a fair bit, mm -hmm. and so then that tolerance will show when they they then machine it. You'll see the machining shape can be different okay. depths in. So yeah. next time you're bored in a bike shop, <laughs> and you, go and look <laughs> at your KTM Enduro bike swing. Arm. Look at the swing arms and look yeah. at the machinings on. But high pressure die casting is it's casting into a a much better engineered mold and at a higher pressure so you're forcing the material in which means you get a denser material you get a better fill you can have far more intricate shapes mm -hmm. think of it as making a sandcastle on the beach yeah, yeah if you don't pack the sand in tight enough mm -hmm. you miss a little tower off your sandcastle yeah it's very sad it is yeah so and then you've got to knock it down which if it's already on the top of your sand fort is risky it is risky yeah and time consuming so, this is a, a long-winded this analogy. is the longest segue ever i told you is i told you this was a way to lose friends and uninfluence people so if you're putting it in a high pressure die cast you get much better fill of the mold so you can then 
make better shapes, which is why you can then use it as bodywork. You mm-hmm. notice now a lot of people aren't hiding their subframes away, particularly in road bike world. Mm-hmm. They've got the subframe on display because they're able to make that outer surface nice, pretty, and a nice shape. Yeah, a lot of man like Ducati do it quite a lot. You know, they have cast a lot of stuff. Yes. That was a terrible sentence. <clears throat> they've done, like, for they've example, done cast the multi, a lot of stuff. The Multistrada has like a completely cast swing arm. Yes. For example, which meant that they could have a single-sided on the road version and a double-sided swing arm. On the dirt bike. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Ish. So, <laughs> We're but, pushing the boundaries of interesting here, but yeah. So back to... What was the first question? Pressing titanium. Pressing titanium. So yeah, Honda... It's incredibly impressive that Honda have come up with a whole new technology to make this, but not really when you know Honda from yeah. a manufacturing point of view. They do a lot of stuff that no one else does in mm-hmm. the manufacturing side. Um, and so for them, engineering superpower that they are, to then take that next step and go, right, well, we're going to work out how to press titanium. They've got lighter fuel tanks. They've got stronger fuel tanks. Yeah. And they own the technology, so it's and a win-win it's for them. Titanium, which is cool. I want to know. I have a question, Dad. Yeah. What what what, what happens when that slides down the tarmac? It fucking looks awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be amazing. <laughs> it would look so that, good. I think I quickly your fuel would explode from all those extra sparks. <laughs> <laughs> that is gonna be spectacular. Amazing. Maybe that's it. So I think I don't know if it. it Obviously, a new Fireblade just came out. For most people that are into adventure, but I don't know how much you pay attention to the rest of motorcycle world. I don't, unless it's a dirt bike, but I do occasionally notice that some sports bikes exist. Something with weird handlebars and fairings has yeah. come out. And uh, yeah, so the new Fireblade, I don't know if the new one has it, but the last generation one definitely had it and the 450R had it because the 450L didn't because they needed a bigger fuel tank and the numbers were too small. So they didn't have a titanium one. I think yeah. it's very confusing. Here's a great question. This is one I guarantee everyone sat down the pub. Has is it asked. better than the 45 minute answer for the titanium? <laughs> yes. No, we're doing well. We're only 20 minutes in. So it's sorry, people. That is 20 minutes. <laughs> Hold we on tight. Get, we get a lot of YouTube comments that exist in the sphere of that bike is shit because it's too heavy. So my question is, not about YouTube commenters. <laughs> I was going to say, I've read some of your YouTube video, comments and um, I, felt, I felt like coming around and giving you a hug. I'm like, do these people realize he's a person? He has feelings. Yeah, he yeah. does have feelings. Well, normally, they're, normally they're fantastic. You know, I think this is a little segue, but anytime... <laughs> you upset the world last time. Yeah, I don't know any, how. Anytime you make a video that is mostly consumed by our subscriber base, they are fantastic. They are positive, lovely humans. They say very nice things. You'd date any of them. I wouldn't date any of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as soon as a video goes outside of that sphere, it becomes really interesting how that dynamic changes especially if you have an opinion that is different from the general consent and a great example of this is not the last video but i made a video a how-to video about how to turn around in tight places that was the other absolute <laughs> internet slaying you received yeah it was you know <laughs> that, that was video... three that was three days before he came off the couch after that one <laughs> and and because it disagreed with the common practice of you must always keep your feet on the foot pegs, we got slated for it. And the same thing happened with our Adventure Bike of the Year video because I tried to change a parameter from the normal for entertainment purposes 
and the world melted down. It did. It melted down. How's your massive paycheck from BMW? Let <laughs> me just to tuck that out. Oh, the way. you've read the comments. I've read the yeah. comments now. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason we're in an office above a gym in the middle of Swansea, and it's not because BMW are paying. It's, it's because they have free brownies. <laughs> they have free vegan brownies downstairs. Mm. So my question is. Why is X bike so heavy? I'm not going to put the next part of the sentence in because that's irrelevant. But yeah, why? I suppose more along the lines of this is a very complicated uh, question. I'm trying to ask it. Um, so your Yama- question's longer than my last answer. It is. Yeah. So Yamaha just produced a Tenere 700, and they did it for 204 kilos. KTM just produced a 790 KTM, and they did it for 200. And I, no one's really quite sure. Somewhere in the region of 206, 207. So those two bikes are dramatically lighter than every other adventure bike that is a twin cylinder that has come out in a decade and a half. You know, the next nearest one was probably an F800 GS when it came out. You know, the last bike that was close was probably the original F800 GS, 217. I think the original one was 211 before they added all the ABS extra bits. So my question is, why are, why are other manufacturers in are currently not making bikes in the same category of weight why you know it was reasonable that bikes got heavier for a while they had to add parts abs fuel injection that stuff is all there now so what is the prohibitive thing that stops a gs 850 from weighing 24 kilos less or stops a africa twin from weighing less Less. Yeah. 20, you know, they dropped five kilos off it and it was a big fanfare, but unfortunately it's not really that big of a fanfare because there's two other bikes that are 25 kilos lighter. They've still had too much cake. Now that, guess what? That's not a straight answer for that. (laughs) (laughs) There's a There's a a bunch of different reasons that those things happen. And again, it comes back to my original point about from the point of the end user, we don't always see all the restraints, but I'm going to slim it down to the kind of two major ones. Firstly, the the adventure bike market, I'm going to say, and you're in a better position to answer this for me than me, but that shift into sports adventure bikes, let's call them sports adventure bikes. Like a 790 KTM. Like a 790 KTM, like the Yamaha Tenere 700. Yes. That shift into performance adventure bikes, mm-hmm. as in off-road performance mm-hmm. adventure bikes, is recent. Yeah, 18 months. Yeah. So... Before that, there was a bit of a push for road performance adventure bikes, stuff with big power. Yeah. Ducati bought the Multistrada out and went full Ducati, made a fast road bike that could go off-road. Yes. BMW then reacted by bringing out the S1000XR. Yes. Some might say a little hastily. It definitely got some some pushing for that, but actually it was a fantastic bike and did Yeah. It did what it was supposed to, but yeah, it was almost like a, a bit of a Me Too moment. And KTM the same. Super Adventure. Yeah. So, you know, but you think from that first Multistrada coming out and then proving itself in the market, mm-hmm. it took a while for everyone else to kind of refine their bikes in that sector. Yeah. And now there are some damn good performance adventure bikes for road use. But I suppose within that context, the Yamaha and the KTM are also better road bikes for weighing so much less. They are in terms of the sort of riding we do on them. In terms of big, long, cruisy road miles, uh, you know, if I want to go and ride fast around a mountain pass, for sure a 790 is lighter, but I'm going to take an S1000XR or a Multistrada because you've got 
loads more horsepower. Mm-hmm. Every overtake's a piece of cake. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing that all day, sure, there's some extra weight, but actually I think the, the horsepower and the having the fat left in the engine every okay. time, yeah. I mean, it's, it's an yeah. opinion thing. But yeah, no, no, at no, the, yeah. point, the point I'm making is high-speed road adventure bikes take a while to catch on. And I think we're seeing the start now of performance, off-road performance adventure bikes, provided the KTM and the Yamaha sell well. I'm certain you'll see. Well, unfortunately for, it's quite interesting that that side of it, because there's two sticking points there. One KTM, unfortunately for them at the moment, they are still a small fish in a big pond when it comes to street bikes, you know, in off-road world, they're huge, but when it comes to street bikes and adventure bikes, they're popular, but they don't sell in big numbers. Like a GS sells in big numbers. You know, we're talking a few hundred units in the UK, or something for a 790, the 790 model, maybe three or 400 units. And for a 1250 GS, you're talking several thousand. Do you know the numbers? And the problem Yamaha have got is that they haven't actually made any. So in the UK, you can kind (laughs) of buy it, but like a friend of mine, Mike, I literally was on the phone to him just before we came here and he's been trying to buy one. And it's not easy because they're not, really there you have to order them and they're difficult to get hold of there's not big numbers you can't buy it in the states for another 18 months yep so it's almost like they've done something brilliant but they might not keep doing it because no one will see the numbers but if the demand is there that's and that's the point basically if the demand's there now this we've got this shift to off-road adventure Mm -hmm. sports bikes we've got we're going niches within niches but Mm -hmm. that shift towards wanting adventure bikes with really good off-road performance if that if that works for ktm and yamaha mm-hmm. and the demand is there i think the other manufacturers will follow suit I and totally then agree. the goalposts have, have moved they've moved from these big touring bikes to these big fast road bikes to mm-hmm. now we need oh, well, overgrown you, you just get, bikes. yeah you get the divide don't you where you know and you can start to see it a little bit because honda have done it with the new africa twin a tiny bit they've got their the standard one, which they kind of say is, this is our off-roady one. It's got the low front screen. YouTube doesn't understand that that's what they've said and they slagged us off for it to another <laughs> You're still level. Hurt. You're I'm still, still hurt. hurting from that. And then they've got the Adventure Sports, which is bigger, comfier, has longer suspension. I'm not really sure why. And has a tall screen. It's a touring orientated bike in the same way like a GS Adventure is a touring orientated. Do you know? And you've seen it with the GS a little bit and more so than before with the new Triumph that's coming, you know, they're really pushing that that's good off-road in a big way. They had a freestyle ramp at their press intro. They did have freestyle. We- and, and that stuff, yeah, so like I say, that, if, if that's now the, the market, you've got to remember, the, yeah. we, we, we talk about these massive, huge companies, but there's a room full of people at all of those companies going... <sighs> What do we take what, up? What do we build next? Yeah, yeah. Where do we, which direction do we take? But so, also they're making that decision. Four years ahead, five years ahead. Yeah. So, so they've got a long lead longer. time. Yeah. And what I think we've seen with the Africa Twin is they've seen that, that switch and they've done what they can with the bike they've got. Yeah. You know, they, they've, to, to make the Africa Twin weigh 200 kilos isn't a bolt-on job for a manufacturer. It's a redesign. It needs to start from the beginning again with a different set of goalposts in mind. And when you've spent a lot of money developing a frame and engine package that you're expecting to last five years, a decade, suddenly you're in a difficult position to try and you've aimed at that market and the market's skewed left. Yeah. 
And so I think that's that's one reason why bikes are way heavier than you think they ought to be in a class. Yeah. Because it takes a lot of time to react to that. Mm-hmm. Second reason, a lot of manufacturers have their own in-house testing procedures that they must meet, and that's not necessarily identical across all of them. So every manufacturer sets their own design standards for a lot of things across their motorcycles. So they'll say, pick one out of the blue. I, I, I'm not allowed under oath and threatening of broken legs to reveal any actual ones from Triumph because it's something that actually on the day I left, one of the design mm-hmm. bosses pulled me into the office and said, if you tell any of our secrets, we'll break your legs, which he was half joking, I think. <laughs> okay, so... If you're uh, watching, AD, hi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, so I, I don't know. You say something like... Um, why does a manufacturer make... Okay, a really good example. F800, F850 GS, really soft forks. Why? We've had this conversation. We have had this conversation. So, yeah, it could just be something as simple as somewhere in the BMW design and adventure bike or designer dual-purpose touring bike Mm -hmm. manual is a test that says you have to be able to do 60 mile an hour and jam on the front brake. And not lock the wheel. Mm-hmm. And you know they're, they're, the tests are all really specific to each manufacturer. But if they've got a test that the bike has to pass, mm-hmm. then they'll do whatever they need. So they might need to make a really soft fork so that the bike dives and gets that grip in that situation. It might be braking on an icy hill. So they need a really soft fork to get weight transfer under very light brake load. Yeah, yeah. Again, I don't know BMW's dirty so, secrets, I- but th- there's often things like that. And every manufacturer has a different one. It might be you've got a cross a, a gully a creek crossing mm-hmm. at 60 mile an hour with 150 kilo pillion and overloaded luggage mm-hmm. so your subframe needs to be stronger yeah you know and the point i'm making is every manufacturer have to develop these tests to prove off their next bike if it then turns out that by meeting all those tests you can never actually get a light bike to market it takes a lot of well, so one momentum them, to change those tests. Yeah, and so I that you kind of mentioning that I read an article a few years ago, which was with someone that worked in Canada for Honda, and I can't remember what model of bike it was, but basically he was talking about why they never bought a certain a certain model of bike to Canada, and essentially he said the problem Honda have got is that in their testing guidelines to homologate a new model in a certain place, you have to do a million miles of collective testing on that continent. So if you want to bring a bike to North America, you have to ride X amount of miles on that bike in that environment to make sure it meets all the standards. You can't just take one from Japan and go, well, it works in Japan. So we're good. Do you know? Whereas maybe other manufacturers don't do it in the same way. And for better or worse that's the limit on honda do you know but it would make sense with something like the africa twin because if they decide what it's going to be four years ago start building it and then get through the testing phase they still need to do i'm and i'm sure bmw are the same like when the s1000 first came out they were super proud of how many miles of testing they'd done you know they'd done a hundred thousand collective miles on or something ridiculous more than you know? that, yeah be more than that but yeah they, they, you know hundreds of thousands of miles between their test crew on those bikes to make sure that they're meeting the standards they need to meet which it, then it starts to explain why that stuff is difficult right it does and yeah and that's where you get that variation so mm. you know it might well be that if you found out all of the manufacturers 
testing constraints and you took something from a manufacturer that maybe always makes a slightly too heavy bike mm-hmm. and then you put another manufacturer their bikes through the same tests they might fail those tests mm-hmm. now that test might be again such a niche thing that in the real world no one's ever discovered that problem but if you're if you if you put yourself in the engineer's position you've sat there you've been designing bikes to pass this test for 20 years Mm -hmm. suddenly you're finding you need to save weight and you can't save weight and pass that test and meet the budget requirements blah 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 so you've got to change the test now you're now saying that i'm going to change this safety requirement this longevity requirement test to make my bike lighter and then sell out to the market that's a terrifying thing to do totally because if you get it wrong well, it's a risk yeah, and, it's a and all risk. of that stuff becomes risk, you know, deciding which way to take your bike. Do you take a risk and do a KTM and go fully right and make the ugliest but most effective adventure bike off-road that we've ever had? Or I, I, I can name a couple of uglier ones, but carry on. Oh, what's the ugliest adventure bike? Is it, is it, Are you going to say the new V-Strop? No. Because Neil no, will cry. Be nice to the V-Strop. I, dude, I like V-Stroms. I'm going to say... The one that's been announced by a certain American manufacturer. Oh yeah, that thing's yeah. bad. And- <laughs> you can say the name. Like, <laughs> yeah, I've I got no bad flaming. No, them. the Harley Davidson is a, like we went through it in our last podcast. It's a very it confusing is the bike. Ugliest bike ever built. Uh, Guzzy. What Noddy's bike? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one. I don't know if anybody's seen this, but if you look at the the, the V seventy seven T T T T E A D V. So it, look at the new Guzzy adventure bike. But only in the red and yellow. And it looks if like Noddy had style. a motorbike, it would be that. But in the grey, it's okay. You know, yeah, some people are really exactly. into it. I'm not, but it's not bad. It's just terrible in the red and yellow. Like whoever <laughs> <laughs> It's like you know, when you give a kid a cartoon not being uh, funny, to but... colour in at like at Frankie and Benny's. <laughs> That's what happened. There. I'm not sure how many of the guys at Motor Guzzy watch Noddy. Like that might just be specific to our <laughs> I wonder upbringing. what it is in Italian. He's a nod. Anyway. Do not do, um, the, do not do the accent. That was what I was thinking in my head there. Do not do the accent. Oh, he um, did it. Yeah, so where were we? Um, ugly bikes. No, yeah, but it's, a, it's about risk, right? So it is. that's all that balance. Um, and obviously they're kind of trying to anticipate where things are going. I'm sure you've, you know, you've been involved in that stuff a lot more than I have. I've never really been involved in the development side of motorcycles. So. Absolutely, and... I mean, when I, the bikes I was involved in were often sports bikes. And in sports bike era, life was very, very simple. Because you made it lighter, you made it faster. Yeah. Okay. And you tried it. Was, yeah. And, and initially, everyone went, oh, don't make them too track focused. So there was this lighter, faster, comfier, better on track, but still a good road bike thing that went on mid 90s. And then late 90s, everyone kind of went, nah, and, because, and just built but, mad bikes. And yeah, because you know, it, the test sold. Test, test sold bikes. Sold. And, and, and people bought bikes they wanted, not not bikes they needed, not bikes they thought were changed. practical. People bought bikes because, sure, I'm riding to work on a rainy Monday morning and I'm bolt upright with eight layers of clothing on, but my bike could be going flat out around Laguna Seca. But I don't think that's changed. No. Just the aspirations what seeing... of what people want have changed. Exactly. And I think maybe that's what we're seeing now with this shift in mm. sporty off-road adventure bikes. You want a bike that could go flat out across the desert. How, how much? Not. How much do you want to buy a Tenere Seven Hundred because it looks badass? I want a red and white one. It and looks I wanna, amazing. I want to put Olin suspension on it. Yeah, and do wheelies everywhere. But why? Because it's cool, it's and badass, that's it. Yeah. Like it's not useful. No, not to me. No. Not day to day. No, totally. 
Yeah. Well, I, I mean, we both worked a little bit at the, at the NEC bike show this year and I did a lot of time stood around talking to people next to really boring bikes and people come up and they're like, I love that bike. I like, I absolutely adore it. Like a guy said it to me about an F750 GS. He's like, that's my dream bike. And I asked him why. And he's like, I just love what it looks like. I'm like, nobody in my mind has ever been stood there and gone, that F750 GS is an incredibly great bike because the performance is good and the fuel economy. Is They're like, no, I like what it looks like. BMW don't even sell it as a dream bike. No. They sell it as a really good practical bike that can do road riding and a bit of trail if you have to. But that dude was going to buy one because he liked it. And that is all that mattered to him. And you can see it in our YouTube comments because... If you pick on a bike someone loves. And Honda fans classically have been very diehard when it comes especially fireblade owners across the genres yeah even even when and there was no denying it the fireblade was five years behind in its development it was you know every other bike was head and shoulders above it what era are we talking here 2009 10 so the fireblade heyday years were early 90s mid 90s yeah and then they continued being good and relevant for a long time after that to be fair but in that era where ZX10, S1000RR, that stuff started coming out, mm-hmm. it did eclipse the Fireblade. And they were great bikes and they were great road bikes still. But they were great for someone that rides a sports bike like me. When we did that group, we did a group test together. Yeah. This was the first probably test we did together for Superbike Magazine. And I came in as the novice sports bike rider. Yeah. And we gave I'd you the been... smallest, most uncomfortable bike. <laughs> <laughs> but I, when I rode the Fireblade, for me, that was awesome. It was comfortable. It was easy. It worked. And you guys as experienced riders were all kind of like, it's okay. Yeah. And then it's important to keep that perspective, isn't it? Because I when you ride the stuff all the time, you get used to it. No, but I think my point was, I don't remember what my point was. I've lost my train of thought there. Honda. Honda. Might not be the best Falling behind. Yeah. Gave you a lovely cuddle. It was a lovely cuddle. Yeah. It was a lovely cuddle. The other one, the Aprilia was also really nice, but. That's not the point. Um, what is the point? I am really sorry. I've completely lost over you've, you've, you've my brain. You've fully derailed like, your own train there. <laughs> my brain yeah, is gone. We're back to that thing. Essentially, a lot of stuff we see in, in, in the motorcycle world, in the motorcycle industry, and I'm sure it's the same across the whole automotive sector, it takes time to react. So if you get it slightly wrong on your market planning, or not wrong, but different to someone else, it takes time to actually see what people really want. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, individual manufacturer constraints can also control what a bike ends up like. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, for years, everyone gave Kawasaki rap for their sports bikes being heavy, there's probably someone inside that had set a parameter where they had to pass a certain test or they had to come in under a certain cost. And actually, that parameter is all it takes. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to push forward my next point here, which is a little bit about weight, because it's a, I think it's a hot subject in in engineering and in motorcycles adventure mm-hmm. bikes particularly one of the first things i did as a as a job was pull apart an entire motorcycle and weigh every component not not exciting no but I fascinating bet, i bet every single washer makes a difference if we, we, we weighed that bike and it was a bike that was nine kilos overweight mm-hmm. um and again this is something you know every manufacturer does they they all test everyone else's bikes and to try and see where the market is, see where improvements can be had. And part of that is pulling them apart and checking them. So the bike's 
what yeah, what did I say? Nine kilos overweight, something like that. Chunk overweight. Mm -hmm. There wasn't one component that was obviously overweight. Mm -hmm. It's the whole bike. Every bike, every component on the bike, 50 grams here, 70 grams there, 100 grams here. Yeah, but you add it open. And then you add it up and suddenly you're nearly 10 kilos more than all your rivals. And you're looking at the bike going... But it's actually it's actually not that hard to imagine. If you if you kind of reverse that and you go, okay, I'm going to take a bike racing. How do I make it lighter? Say you put a titanium bolt kit on a bike, on a race bike. Yeah. And you might say, oh, that's really expensive. And it only saves us 250 grams. But if you do seven lots of 250 grams, you have a significant weight loss. Uh, how much? Seven lots of 250 yeah, grams. Yeah, roughly, quickly. It would be 1.75 kilos. Four kilos, broke. 1.75 kilos. And and so a really good example would be, um, you know, Honda's new bike, here, new Africa Twin is five kilos lighter than it was. If you put a lithium battery in it, you're at seven and a half kilos. Yeah. If you put a lighter wheel set on it, you're at 10 kilos. And, you know, in theory, you've just, you're doing it with your 950 now. You've done it with an 1150 you can drop the weight of those bikes dramatically quickly with slightly newer technologies. Exactly. And yeah. And, and they're in, yeah, I've, I've got a bit of a thing about weight on adventure bikes and I took the 1150 GS adventure, which was renowned as being the big fat pig mm -hmm. at its, uh, at its portliest. It was 274 kilograms. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and again, I, I then looked at that bike and I have, I got one in and, Actually, we got it down to 240, I think it was 243 kilos. Sounds dreamily light. I know, it's incredible, right? <laughs> but, you know, you don't actually need to do a lot to, to make it lighter than the current 1200 GS. But as an end user, that's much easier to achieve because... You can circumvent laws and circumvent... Yeah, I don't have to meet any you know, homologation standards. Yeah. And I didn't want a center stand. Took the center stand off. Yeah. I didn't want that extra mud flap around the rear tire. And I, I suppose took that off. for Honda to put a lithium battery in every bike, their cost goes up slightly. Yes. They might not be comfortable doing it because it doesn't meet. You know, I, yeah. But I suppose it sounds like quite a lot, 20 kilos. But if you change two or three things, lighter exhaust, lithium battery. Again, lighter exhaust. I don't need a cat. No. I don't need a silencer. I haven't got to meet noise restraints. Exactly, yeah, yeah Suddenly, yeah. it's very easy to chop a lot of weight out of a motorcycle. But why are KTM able to do it now? That's my point. It, it was originally my point. Is yeah. They've done an amazing job. I think the reason the KTM is and the Yamaha are so light and they've, is because they've, they've started from the beginning mm -hmm. to make those bikes light. Mm -hmm. If Honda started from the beginning with an Africa Twin and said, we're going to make it sub 190 kilos. They totally could. They would. Okay. If Triumph yeah. decided that actually road performance isn't our thing anymore, we're going to make a better off-road bike than KTM, mm -hmm. they could do it. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, you know, the manufacturers all aim slightly so different the, goalposts. The, the question is multifaceted. Okay, next question. Oh, this, <laughs> was, that one was 25 minutes. That was a 25-minute <laughs> answer for, so, for us to basically say, because <laughs> yeah, yeah because no no no. i think it's a good answer i think it's a really interesting kind of point because when you sat down in the pub it is easy to throw those things around and say oh, bmw really need to fix their forks and they do but because the best bike they make is one without a fork but that's not the point the point is that the, those comp those answers are complicated answers aren't they there are yeah it's not often as clear-cut as we see it as the end user so someone asked me a brilliant question today and in the last 
couple of years, parallel twins have become extremely popular amongst middle-class adventure bikes. Well, middle-class middle class adventure bikes. <laughs> ones, middle... that, ones that eat foie gras, but they still live in a semi-detached yeah, house. Yeah, semi-detached, right? three-bedroom, nice garden, maybe a garage. Um, no, so in that, in that middle bracket, the seven, eight, 900cc bracket, parallel twins, super hot. Started with the F800, F850, KTM, Yamaha, all parallel twins. So the question was, why are they not all cross-plane crank 270 degree firing angles when it works so well? And that was, I thought it was a really good question because the Yamaha is, and maybe I'm wrong, but they are the manufacturer that started that trend a little bit in their sports oh, bikes. You, you didn't even believe your own sentence. I don't, though, did you? I, I don't know that that's true, but my, just from my memory is that the R1 was famous for being the cross-plane crank R1 that everyone loved. Yeah. But that has worked its way into... And that, T, that MT-07 engine is fantastic because... One of the main things that makes it brilliant to ride is the, this is painful to say because it's a buzzword, but the throttle connection is very good. Yeah. And it came to light a little bit because Triumph turned around at their new bike announcement and went, we've made it a 270 degree firing order because it improves the throttle connection. And everyone <laughs> went, ah, you rode a Yamaha. <laughs> oh, we yes, read that one. Yes. Um, but it's true. Yamaha has great throttle connection. It has a very, very good bottom end. It makes a really good power curve all the way through. And it feels better than a 70 horsepower engine does in any other bike. So why does everyone not do it? Um, engines oh. take even longer to develop. <laughs> that's my answer for and, everything. And no, but that, that's a great point because the Yamaha is using... Yamaha built an engine, the MT-07 engine, the CP2 is the model name of it. That's very nerdy. Um, Sister to the CP03, the uh, three-cylinder engine found in the MT09 and the Tracer. But that CP2 engine is fantastic. And they have figured out that they can just put it in anything and it works. However, yeah, why, do, why are other manufacturers not doing that? Or why are they only now just realizing that that's a great way to make an engine? Yeah, exactly. It's, engines are very expensive to, to design and to develop. I'm going to say more so than chassis. Mm -hmm. And as an ex-chassis engineer, that is, that is some, that is a, I'll be well, because, slapped by my colleagues next time I see them. But, but maybe you could, because you can say that there's a huge amount of casting cost, a huge but, amount of development costs in the engine cases, the mm -hmm. crank cases. And if you imagine, I'm trying to think of a good, good parallel, but if you imagine trying to make an engine now mm -hmm. and you're going to make it for that, that adventure bike, mm -hmm. but you're going to have those cases for, Six, seven, decade, eight. yeah, and you've got to try and make sure that everything you want to do in the next decade will work without modifying this engine. So you've got to make sure your engine mounts are always going to work. Mm -hmm. You've got to make sure that however much of a stressed member it is in the frame, it's not going to snap in half. You've got to make sure that you can get a big enough alternator when you decide that you need a touring bike on that engine. Mm -hmm. But you've got to make sure it's skinny enough that when you need to make a sports bike out of that engine, it's got ground clearance. Mm -hmm. And you've got to do all that now for ten years time. Yeah, like it's. Yeah, it blows my mind still how they managed to do that. And Yamaha has done an exceptional job with the CPO3 and the CPO2. They're two twin Phenomenal and three-cylinder engines. engines. But let's not let's not forget, at the point when the MT09 came out, Yamaha were in a bad place. You yeah. know, they were their bikes were too expensive. 
They, were they weren't the best in class. Expensive-wise. And everyone was kind of a bit down on Yamahas. And then they bought out this MT-09. And we all went, I went and rode the first one and was like, holy cow, this thing is... What year was that? 2011? Before 12? I banged my head. Um, yeah, it must have been 12, 11. Because across... Some, someone will tell us in the comments. They will. Um, and we can probably look that up. We have three mobile phones here. Um, but I think that was across the board. That wasn't just road bikes. That was... No, they just dirt had a, bikes a, as well. a, a, and, and they did a massive company restructure to achieve all that. It was a huge deal, Yamaha's turnaround. Mm-hmm. And and they've kind of done no wrong since. Yeah, they, they keep bringing out stuff that is, good. certainly in road bike world, very, very good. Very, and, very competitive. And creative. Yeah, and, and you, kind of unique in, in their own way. So, no, totally. Like, I think the Nikon is a great example yeah. of that. What an awesome they bike. They went mental and built yeah. a bike with three wheels. Why? Because they could. I don't know many people that have ridden one. That haven't come away and been like, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. It's weird, but it's awesome. I crashed one. Yeah, on purpose. It was brilliant. The, this was was it. When was this? Last year. Yeah. At the same time, Chris Moss crashed one. Uh, he didn't do it on purpose. Ah, uh, okay. Because he did. He did, he did start with the Chris Moss is another journalist in the UK. He is a legendary journalist in the UK. Famous for bold statements and big crashes. <laughs> <laughs> is that fair? Famous. He's going to get that on his tombstone. <laughs> bold statements and big crashes. Um, and I believe what happened is he started the day by saying this bike is uncrashable. <laughs> <laughs> thus guaranteeing a trip to the hospital and he's also i would say committed he should be yes <laughs> <laughs> he is committed way beyond the point i've ever been committed on a road bike he's a better rider on the road than me but also there's times where i get nervous watching him because the commitment level goes beyond my understanding he is a thorough journalist he is a thorough journalist and someone see the best we're on a on a on a brilliant path off down the rabbit hole of motorcycles now but that thing was a good example someone needed to crash it yeah and properly you know i cheated i just did it on purpose without rigors for and, rng no that was an mt10 oh, for for bike world bike social bike social okay yeah have a look um, um, yamaha nick and crash tested okay you, you can i'm gonna go in for one of these you can oh, there's only half one left. I'll get some more. Yeah, someone had to crash it properly to find out. It's easy to crash a bike when you've got an outrigger to catch you. and Or even if you haven't, it's easy to crash a bike when someone said, you can crash it, mm-hmm. go enjoy. But that always warps the perception of how it feels. So someone had to push it to the point of actually it letting go to really know what that front end was mm. like. And was a thorough man. Mossy did it. Yeah, a fair play. Ah. Oh. Frightening. But where were we? So cross plane cranks. Cross plane cranks and cross plane crank, much better throttle connect much better throttle connection. Why? Oh, that definitely comes down to perception rider feel. But there's an old thing about recovery time of tires. So if you've got an engine it came from four cylinder bikes, more GP bikes, mm-hmm. and they went to this big bang firing order. If you've got an engine that as it rotates, for one revolution of the crank You've got four cylinders, for instance. You've got four bangs. Mm-hmm. So one revolution, you go bang, 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 bang. So at every 90 degrees, the engine fires. You get a very smooth power Linear. delivery. Linear, smooth. Sounds like the dream. But because it's always firing, there's actually no time instantaneously on like that split-second level for the rear tire to recover. The best way of thinking about it is if you if I gave you a gravel car park and an old-school thumpy single cylinder engine mm-hmm. and 
a four-cylinder engine mm-hmm. and asked you to pull away without too much wheel spin as um, fast as you can. That big old single 650. You can get the traction. You can feel what's going on. Mm-hmm. And they're more predictable to slide. Mm-hmm. The four-cylinder, everything's a bit more zingy mm-hmm. and not very predictable to slide because they just want to break traction and never come back. And that comes down to, there's a lot of science been put into working out why over the years. And I don't think it's fully understood yet, but MotoGP has certainly proven that moving to an uneven firing order, so rather than in your one revolution going bang, 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 every 90 degrees. Putting all of them near each other. You go, bang, 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 bang. I'm sure this is how the Honda's technical presentation went as well. (laughs) Bang, 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 bang. But yeah, you don't do the accent. (laughs) I wouldn't. <laughs> you were you were thinking about no, it. No, no, you were no, definitely you did no. the Italian one. <laughs> yeah, it's less so you, racist. And that gives the tire more time to recover. Is the theory behind that? Okay. It definitely comes across then when you ride the bikes. They feel easier to ride. They feel more forgiving. Mm-hmm. And that has applied to parallel twins now as well. Why doesn't everyone do it? I'm going to say that at the point when parallel twins were last being developed, so you think the original F800 engine well, they were kind of the only popular one, though, that F800. Well, it wasn't... In adventure bike world, but obviously in road bike world, you've got ER6 Kawasaki's. Yeah. Um, but I suppose other things. On, the, on that level, when I think of those bikes, they're not performance bikes. You know, it's not... They're not so much in the sphere of, like, a V-twin or... No. Do you, but they're very smooth. Very smooth. And that ER6 the advantage is a lovely of the, bike. the non-cross-plane crank. Was it ER5 or... Was it a parallel parallel twin again? Yeah, but yeah, a a non-crossplane crank is a very smooth engine. So Mm -hmm. if you're trying to make something that's comfortable, smooth, you don't need a big balancer shaft. CB500X. All about the CB500 today. (laughs) You can you can use a non-crossplane crank, you know, a regular firing rod, and you get a very smooth engine. But again, now we're starting to be a bit more about rider experiences. We're trying to get a bit more off-road performance. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, need that crossplane crank. And I know one of the big drivers of Triumph is they were criticised for the original tiger 800 engine being a bit hair dryery it was a very yeah. smooth engine and it i think had a bit of a whir to two, it, it sounded two thirds a bit of that that it sounded like it sounded like a hairdryer yeah. that was the big yeah because actually to ride i don't know what you know i mean testing the peak limits of the grip on those bikes not really something you do that much on no. that but the engine was great it lovely was a lovely engine, super linear maybe even too linear but, but smooth. But super smooth. Fantastic fueled fantastically. Good bike. Like, good bike for the time. But people love a bit of ba dum And technical term again. Yeah. But, and I think that's, you know, that's why they've changed. It, it gives feels that, nicer. feels like it's got more character. Which yeah, character. is a very unquantifiable thing, but it is a thing. You know, you yeah. ride a bike that's got some, some vibe, some buzz to it. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. You ride mm. something that's perfectly linear and smooth. Well, interestingly, effective. the Yamaha is very linear and very smooth, but it, it kind of has a, an interesting characteristic in that it picks up very quickly and it feels very free. Yeah. So it's great at wheelies and it likes to be revved, but unlike some bikes that like to be revved, it's still got bottom end. Yeah. It's a really, it's kind of a catch. It's kind of almost the perfect engine. The perfect engine. Almost. That's it's, pretty good phrase, not, though. Almost the perfect it's engine. It's not because they don't wet the ports Do in they the not? cylinder. <laughs> Again, it could be that. It could, it could be, be that. that. No, but that, do you know, like, yeah. when you, I, I've not met anyone. When you look at it on paper, 70 horsepower or 74 or whatever it is from a 700cc twin 
nobody's looking at that engine on paper and going, that's going to be awesome. But you ride it and nobody cares that it's only 70 horsepower. Everyone enjoys it. It's easy. It's great at wheelies. It's super fun. It's super tractable. It revs well. And it still sits on the motorway at a decent speed, even though it's a smallish engine. And this this comes back around to kind of a flaw. Not a flaw, it's just natural. But the way we look at bikes, we look at numbers a lot. Mm. We look at numbers because that's what we've got to go on to start with. Until mm-hmm. you ride it, that's what we've got to go on. And, and, and when you look at numbers like that, 74 horsepower, well, that's not very good. But actually, in the range you ride it in, maybe it has got more power in those rev ranges. And if it's light, it doesn't need as much power. And mm-hmm. if it's got a high center of gravity, it will wheelie and pitch with less power. So it feels faster. Mm-hmm. And if you've got a free engine, one that spins up quickly, it, it makes it up to that power quicker because it will rev faster. Yeah. And all those things are there that you can put numbers on them, but it's not something that you could put on a spec sheet and people are going to print in a magazine and go, oh, look, it's got... Uh, you weren't in that Yamaha press conference. Well, uh, they, yeah, thought, yeah. <laughs> they thought everyone cared. But, <laughs> but that a, stuff's too niche, too obscure. Two and a half hours. That's a short Japanese press oh press my conference. God, it was emotional. <laughs> but but everyone puts that stuff in, but yeah, it's not widely it's no. not widely understood or well, known. A good example of that is they talked a lot about the front to back weight bias of that bike being fifty two percent to the rear. And that was the first time I'd ever heard that mentioned in a press conference right. before. Ever. Yeah. I still don't know what it means. Yeah, from sports bike world, that was a huge thing. Yeah, okay. Nobody in dirt bike world has ever ever cared about they, that. They like they only discovered mass centralization in like 2014. <laughs> I'm not joking. Um, yeah. Okay. So we've got some questions from people on Instagram and so on. The first one, I might have to check my phone. Do I'm, you... I'm used to having conversations with the top of your head, Lil. <laughs> hopefully you didn't see what my password was there so abs in an off-road slash adventure bike would you prefer more feel or allow the tech to decide i feel like that needs a little bit of i don't think that's quite fair on abs systems so more feel as in i'm not having abs yeah as in not having abs or having abs systems which do you prefer so for me Currently, I prefer not to have ABS. Oh, interesting. For me. So that said, I'm going to balance that with I've just helped my sister-in-law buy a bike. Yeah. And we had the choice of two bikes. And I told her to get the one with ABS because mm-hmm. I'm not infallible. I've definitely crashed on the brakes. Mm-hmm. But I'm a lot deeper in my riding career and I kind of have enough faith and I've had enough experience of locking the front tire, yada, 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 to trust my braking performance. She's just started. Mm-hmm. If she has that panic situation that something comes around the corner, hits the brake in a panic and locks the front wheel when she doesn't have ABS, I'm going to feel like a dick for not telling her to get ABS. Mm. And, and I think it's a tricky situation. So with ABS, you pump your brake fluid from the lever. It goes around the bike via the factory in Tokyo, back around the bike, around in a circle, Matha Hofgen, CKTM, back around again, and then through a unit, and then through some valves, and then all the way back out to your brake caliper. Mm-hmm. With a regular brake, the fluid goes from the lever to the caliper. Mm-hmm. So you get much better feel. With I, I, I'm sorry, I've not ridden a bike with ABS yet, where you don't have that slightly extra bit of travel on the lever, that slightly numbed feel compared to having a direct link between the two. And for me, I much prefer to have that better feel 
and not have ABS stepping in. Interesting. So even and it's controversial, I know. But no, it's interesting because a lot of people feel the same, and then a lot of people don't feel. I think there's hmm. a really big split on this. Have you crashed? Ha- have you crashed breaking in a straight line on an adventure bike? Yeah. Never. Even with ABS turned off. Never. And someone said this to me because I was always like, I hate that thing where you say, I don't want ABS. And then <laughs> there's always that worry that you're then going to immediately crash. And- but I, I think I would caveat that with two things. One, <laughs> for the last four years, a lot of the adventure bikes I ride have great ABS. Yeah. So I haven't turned, turned it, off it off that much. The second one is I don't think I've ever been at my limit on an adventure bike apart from the KTM 790 Adventure R yeah. because I don't know where the limit is. Yeah. I haven't found it. But on all those other bikes, I would say <laughs> it's a difficult one because I was always of, uh, probably until last year, I was always in the camp of, no, nah, I'm turning the ABS off. I don't like it. I don't need it. I'm not going to ride with it. And then BMW changed something on the 1250 in the last few years, 1200, 1250, where the pro mode, the pro plug-in is phenomenal. Yeah. And, and what I didn't like about ABS systems for me was not as much the feel. I'm not that fussy about it. I hate it when they're wooden, but the newer Bosch-based systems are generally not that wooden. I think they're pretty good. They're there's the line. Pretty pretty good. Not Still not as good as a nicely set up direct connection. Do you know the switch for me was the moment the ABS stopped kicking in? And that's my point. Is you call an ABS system good. When you don't notice when it. When you don't notice there. Because now it's its limit on the GS to somewhat the KTM as well. Yeah. 790, fantastic ABS. It's limit and when I like it, is when I don't know it's there. Exactly. And you don't know it's there because it hasn't had to kick in. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't had to kick in because your braking skills are good enough that you're not triggering it. Yeah. And the suspension's good enough. Ergo, yeah, but ergo yeah. I'm saying even if you had that turned off... I wouldn't notice it was there. You'd still be riding exactly the same. I'd be riding exactly the same, yeah. yeah. And, and I'm not... I, this isn't a, hate, a hating on ABS thing because I, no. think, I think it's a very valuable <laughs> system and we are blessed to be riding in a time where and you've I think got that safety net. We're also lucky to have got to be at our age with enough skill that we're not coming into it. And this was made quite interesting to me because uh, we'll come back to Chris Moss here. He didn't start riding off-road. You know, he does a bit of adventure stuff and a little bit of dirt bike stuff, but mostly he's a road journalist. And for years, he was inherently anti-off-road till someone fixed him. And then... <laughs> Are you taking credit for that? No, not at all. No, not at all. I'm, you know, I haven't had anything to do with that, to be honest. That was all of his own volition. Um... But he definitely, he went, uh, when BMW first bought Husqvarna, they fitted ABS to a Husky 449. The same, essentially, my understanding is the same system that exists in the GSs now. And I remember him asking me what I thought of that. And I was, I'm a hardcore off-road dude. And at the time I was like, Every ABS system I've ever ridden is dreadful. It will never be good enough. I think those were the words I said. That doesn't sound like you at all, Lil. I think it was one of those times where I was young and dumb and had a bit of learning to do. (laughs) And I'm still young and dumb. (laughs) I have lots of learning to do. But what he said to me was, as a novice, 
that was one of the most confidence inspiring things ever because he's not ever breaking near the limit of the ground. So when he steps over the limit, he's completely out of control and the ABS system gave him confidence that he never knew. And and to this day, it doesn't exist in a dirt bike, but it doesn't exist because of people like me. And and, and look, (laughs) you you and I spend a lot of time riding off-road with people of hugely varying experiences. Mm. And we've been working together 10 years in that sort of environment. What's the one thing that's made the biggest change to the amount of people we pick up off the floor? ABS and traction control. And those two, ABS more so, but exactly. both of those things being good systems. That And, and that, that for me is the answer. I mean, you ask me personally what I would choose. Yeah. I'm a bit of a Luddite. I've, 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 you know, I've started buying bikes with carburetors and no ABS again because I, I long for those good old days. Much like when I was sort of a teenager, all the guys oh. that were in their 30s wanted two strokes. But they are nice. You ride a bike with a carb now, you're 950. It's not even the best example, and you ride the one with the carb, and you're like, "That's pretty nice." It blew us away. Mm. Stood next to a brand new 790. Yeah, the throttle response was nice. Yeah, yeah. It's so interestingly, nice. and- the power delivery isn't that different. They still no, struggle still- to find grip. <laughs> but yeah, that's angry. a whole different. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. You know, I, I like non-ABS systems for myself, but I definitely for the world, the market, and 90% of riders. It is the single greatest advancement in motorcycling in the last 20 years. Yeah. So I think in answer to your question, would you prefer more feel or allow tech to decide? I don't think, I think in a good ABS system, the tech doesn't decide. That's the point. The tech is the, is like your last recall safety net in a really good system. In a really good system. It leaves you alone. In a bad, in a bad system such as, or a cheap, no, not bad, in a cheap system, a simplistic <laughs> system yeah. without a complicated IMU. What does IMU stand for? Inertial measurement unit. Oh, yeah. This is a, a phrase Yamaha coined. <laughs> yeah, they did. But they don't have one in their Tenere. And it shows because it's fine on a gravel road at a medium pace. And then it's not fine. Yeah. <laughs> ABS is terrifying. only as good as the information it has. Exactly. And it, it needs more information to do a better job. Which costs more money. And which weight. is why the only bikes that have it are now, uh, they're all 10 grand or more. But good question. Interesting answer. KTM SMCR 690. Is that just under 10? SMCR 690. That's under 10. I think that has it. Does it? I think the, so. the one that just came. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. High tech versus low tech in an adventure bike. So I think this is a broader question than just ABS. Because if your ABS system fails, it doesn't matter. You take the fuse out, it's failed. So it doesn't matter. It still works. But... When it comes to adventure bikes, there's a group of people that are like, yeah, tech, sweet, it does a great job. I love my bike. I don't really care. And then there's definitely people that are like, I want my old bike because it's got a carburetor and I can fix it. But there's also some people. The reason you can fix a carburetor is because everyone's an expert at rebuilding them because they always need rebuilding. (laughs) Yes. Injectors don't as much. But one, once upon a time, the caveat of this is once upon a time, bikes had points and you had to redo them all the time. Exactly. And but you could fix thought, them. <laughs> but you could fix them. You can't fix a CDI. Can't fix a CDI. Apart from the fact, when was the last time your CDI broke? Well, not, I have a lot of junk. <laughs> I have a lot of we're junk. We're not talking about the alternator on your, yeah. uh, your 950 here. So high tech versus low tech. And this, this what is What do you prefer? This is an absolute classic question in adventure world Mm -hmm. and i think it's one that i know i'm sat next to the editor of 
break magazine here, but I think it's one that's very easily missed in a large proportion of tests because simply it isn't possible to take every bike and do a six-week expedition and crash it and break it. Absolutely not. And put it outside. And and so that discovery of the true limit of reliability mm-hmm. is something that is very, very difficult. And I think it's irresponsible for us as testers I kind of treat it like my job as a tester is to tell you how that bike performs. Not how long it's going to last. Not how long it's going to last. Exactly that. Not really worth it. There's lots of questions I can't answer. Yeah. Um, that that thing of high-tech, low-tech is a tricky one. It depends what you're doing. If you're using your adventure bike for razzing around, having fun and being an idiot, high-tech's amazing because you get more speed and more performance. Mm-hmm. everyone wins less maintenance and less time fixing it low tech the, the advantage of low tech really is in the the desert scenario you know you're buried somewhere deep in namibia the locals all drive early 90s hiluxes peugeot 406 pickups peugeot 405 pickup trucks ouch 406 was the later one that got turned into a touring car ah. this is gonna get so dull <laughs> so you know, if you're needing to fix the bike in a situation where you've have very primitive tools on hand, then the lower the tech you go, the more chance you've got of being able to fix absolutely everything. If anyone's ever read that the the, the motorcycle diaries, Che Guevara, mm-hmm. it's the perfect example in this situation. So you look at a modern guy going adventuring on a modern bike, and he's talking about fixing punctures, fixing crash damage, chains, chains. If you've got chains, it's it's superficial so, stuff. So do you actually buy into that to that idea though? Do you do you feel like if something electrical goes wrong on your bike and you're out in the middle of nowhere? Because that's ultimately what it that when people are saying technology, what they're scared of is that the the electronic component of their bike, so fuel injection, things that control the way it runs, are things that they don't understand and they don't know how to fix. So do you buy into the fact that say a new twelve fifty GS something electronic breaks on it say what are the things that can break fuel injection can stop working for some reason your electronic throttle can stop working for some reason those are the things that are ultimately going to completely ground you yeah do you feel like actually you can't solve those things on the road absolutely you know if you're at the side of the road and i can see the look of disbelief actually honestly if you're if you're at the side of the road and one of those components breaks it can be game over you know if you have a you know, a significant sense of fail, a, a, you know, a significant thing fail on your mm-hmm. on your GS or we're picking on GSs there, but, no, but it's, on your KTM yeah. or, or whatever. If your high tech bike, one of the high tech components does fail, mm-hmm. for sure you're grounded mm-hmm. because unless you've got a replacement component at the side of the trail. So is that any different? Do do you, uh, so? I, I think th- what it comes down to is people are worried that if they're in Senegal, if they're in Morocco, they're going to be able to get bodge on a new set of points. They're going to be able to lash something to an old mechanical bike, yeah, and make it work to get them out. Of there. I, and I totally agree; you can totally do that. However, I think this is interesting because if I was going to do something that was putting me in a remote scenario on a higher tech bike, I would probably treat it in the same way. So, if you're throttle cable was gonna like i take it back to my experience of like that scenario is dakar 
and on my Dakar bike, next to my throttle cable and my clutch cable, I had zip tied a spare clutch cable and throttle cable. So you, would you take, I mean, it's expensive to buy a new throttle. Throttle sensor. Is that what you call it? But we're back to that thing. Throttle cables break often. Clutch cables break they often. Do. So you carry spares. An electronic throttle doesn't break very Unless often. you have Unless you that, smash it up. Yeah, but, which does happen. We've yeah. seen that happen. Um, so do you just have a replacement one? Yeah, and, and then you get And is this. it just a mindset thing of because people because it's new, people are scared of learning it because bikes existed roughly in the same guise of mechanical systems for the better part of a hundred years. And then all of a sudden those mechanical systems are gone. You can't there's no carburetor, there's a fuel injection unit. But actually to take an injector out and put a new one in, not that difficult. I think I think it comes down to if you've or got a high tech being arrogant, a high tech bike <laughs> is much less likely to break. A modern high tech bike is much less likely to have a problem. Yeah. In general. But if you do have a problem, it's going to be harder to fix. And you have yeah. to make the decision. Say I'm some where am I going on my trip? If I'm going around Europe or America or somewhere where I can get a phone and, and order a part. And there's a garage. Yeah. Of course I'm going to take the bike I most want to ride, regardless of technology. Mm-hmm. Now if I'm thinking about surviving the nuclear nuclear holocaust or i've got a you're buying a drc i'm moving to mad max i'm gonna buy a cockroach of a bike yeah you know i'm gonna buy a i'm gonna buy an ancient air cooled two-stroke single yeah that i can fix with a stick yeah that that's what it comes to but i think the most important caveat there is you've got to be very honest about your own mechanical ability Mm -hmm. because I've seen people grounded by broken side stand switches. Yeah. When all you've got to do is twizzle two wires together. And that's simple Unless for me. Unless you've got a KTM. And then it's not two wires, it's three wires. And if you twizzle them together, it won't run. And you've got to get the right ones. But, but you see, if, if, yeah, if you've yeah, got no, a really good level of that base mechanical ability. Uh, unless and you're you are going somewhere, somewhere very remote. But if you're going somewhere third world, not that remote, I don't think you need any mechanical ability because they've got it. Yeah. But yeah, I, it's a really interesting point because I think... Like you say, I think if you live in Europe, South Africa, North America, Australia, technology is awesome, man. Yeah, they break very the rarely. Cruise control. But so the, what was the question? Go back to the first. The question was it high tech versus low tech. What do you prefer and why? Okay, so let's actually just put an answer on let's that. Let's put an answer in. Yeah. I'm going to answer I prefer low tech mm-hmm. because I'm a tinkerer. Yeah. I like fixing bikes. You and do. With a low tech bike, I don't order parts in to fix it. I can fix what's on it with stuff in my garage. So I would I'm gonna go the opposite. I love a high tech bike, but with the caveat that I am in a very fortunate position in that I don't buy bikes. And I love high tech bikes because they're they're so good to ride. Yeah. Like you think about how good the current crop of adventure bikes are. Even, yeah. They're awesome. And I love TFT screens. They are awesome. I love cruise control. Like cruise control is the best thing that's ever happened. Cruise control that's not made with a zip tie. <laughs> yeah. Is, it's so is good. actually really good. I grant you that. I'm, so I'm a low tech guy, but I'm happy to admit tech I am awesome. a complete Luddite. Yeah. Interestingly, named after a movement of people who used to trash high technology mills back in the day. And they did. That's another bit of random research I went through. Did you not learn that in school? No, I learned it when I was writing an article and wanted to see if Luddite had to have a capital L or not. Uh, yes. It does because they were... And two Ds. Uh, yeah, I knew that. Come on. 
Um, so next question. Would that be Levite in the Welsh? Levite. Or Levite. 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 Yeah, yeah. It would be Levite. Uh, you've lived here a lot longer than me. You should be able to pronounce it. Yeah, but it's not a Welsh word. If I if I knew it was a Welsh word, <laughs> I would sort of slip straight in. Uh, so Dial. next one, and this is a great question because I think I know. Off-road ABS, is it any good? Yes. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't be more positive. Yes. That's the first actual answer. We Yes, move with on. a caveat. No caveat. Yes, yes, move on. If it is actually off-road ABS. So that's off-road ABS with currently the only system that's producing anything that's in the category you would call good is using a Bosch IMU. Yes. So that's the KTM that are bigger than a 690. The 691 is terrible. The old 690 or the latest one? The latest one's still dreadful. Um, so 790 KTM, the big KTMs, 1250 GS, 850 GS-ish, the fork doesn't help it. The Ducati Multistrada, fantastic ABS. The Honda, decent, not fantastic. Still slightly problematic. Better, but not good. The European bikes, I'm they're Kill, good. Killing it right now. They're good. You can do stoppies on them. The ABS is good. What other questions do we have? I think that is probably it. I think we've asked everything. We're at one hour, 21 minutes. That's a lot of... I told you it was going to be dull Fantastic. and long. Hey, the last one, we talked about... We talked about new bikes for an hour and 15 minutes, so... Now, Lil. Yes. I have a question for you. Oh. Now, for years... You've yeah. picked on me a little bit for being a nerdy engineer, but you've been nice about it. I love it. But you you have made people realize that I was an engineer. Oh, and now they all jest. bully now they all bully me. I yeah, but only because I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll remember a decade and a bit ago when we first met. Is it that long? I wow. taught you a thing. Ah. And I I'm gonna say what it is and you're gonna to explain to the nice people okay, what it is. Yeah. And if this you get is the it wrong, moment I realized I loved you. The bing bong, the big buzzer noise if yeah, you get yeah. it wrong. Lel, okay. can you explain spring hysteresis? Yes, I can. So, well, ish. I'm sure there's some engineering <laughs> caveats to this. So spring hysteresis, when you compress a spring, basically the spring tries to turn as you compress it. And so you need to deal with that in suspension to stop the rotational force of the spring being transferred to other components. Oh, you, you weren't wrong enough for a big, big bing bong. Oh. You were pretty close there. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially, when you compress a spring, it tries to turn. It tries to twist. Now, twist. if you clamp both ends of the spring so it can't twist, then it won't compress. No, it will, it will compress, but it affects the spring rate. Ah, so instead yeah. of the spring rate being completely linear, yeah. it actually ramps up slightly on compression and yeah. ramps down slightly on extension so you don't get a linear spring rate. So that is why in in cheap-ish suspension you'll find a plastic washer. That lets in, the spring rotate and in expensive stuff you'll get actual roller bearing. Tremendous. And that was the first time I realized Chris knew more about everything than I would ever know. And that is a fact that will never, ever, ever make you any friends or get you laid. No, but I'm glad I know. <laughs> like, if there's anyone that loves to know more about suspension, it's me. It is. It is. I'm sure you've lectured me back with that one several times. Um, yeah, fantastic. What do engineers use as, um, as a contraceptive? Uh, their knowledge. Their personality. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. Um, 
yeah, thank you very much, Chris. That has been a fascinating podcast. I'm sure everyone that listens to it will listen all the way to this point. Um, and lastly, thank you very much for being a Patreon subscriber and listening to this. It is massively appreciated. And yeah, it makes things like this possible. Patreon bought Chris a pizza tonight. So that that is... Did it really? It did indeed. Like, yeah. You told me you bought me that. Well, those are the same things. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah well thank you very much um, we'll be back next month with another podcast something less nerdy I don't think so I think it's going to continue down this vein this is what it should be alright peace out